Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Gary Liu, CEO of the South China Morning Post. He spoke with Shorenstein Center Director Nick O'Mealy about his ambitions for the South China Morning Post, the Chinese media landscape, and American attitudes towards China. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Shorenstein Center Speaker Series. I'm Nick O'Mealy. I want to especially thank Susan Bird, who's an, uh, an associate at the Shorenstein Center this fall. Uh, she has a project, a podcasting, a documentary podcasting project, uh, following Gary as he leads a transformation of the South China Morning Post. And so with that, let me talk about Gary and introduce him. He is the CEO of the South China Morning Post, an English language media company covering China and Asia. Prior to joining the SCMP, he was the CEO of DIG, many of you are certainly familiar with, and he led that sort of transformation from aggregator to news platform. Previously, he was the head of Spotify Labs, where he managed emerging technologies and business strategies for Spotify's global markets. He's also worked at AOL and Google and he is an alum of Harvard College with a BA in economics. Gary, thanks for flying over from Hong Kong to join us today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So I love the story of your journey from, uh, you could say, the heart of the tech industry to leading one of the oldest and most venerable newsrooms in the entire world. How did that happen? By luck, to be very honest with you. Uh, my my time, I, I stumbled into technology, to be very honest, 10 some years ago, and I stumbled into traditional media. But the, the, the fact that I ended up in it is actually not so much of a surprise to folks that, that know me because I've spent most of my life uh, fascinated by developing media. I, I've grown up around paper newspapers, which makes me, I think, a little bit unique, certainly in my generation or my half generation. I have no idea how the generations work anymore because it seems like every five years, completely different kinds of consumer behavior. So uh, for my peers, I'm definitely different in the way that I consume media. And I've always paid a lot of attention to the way that newsrooms have been changing since the development of the internet or the introduction of, uh, of digital media as primary discovery and consumer consumption channels. And my career in tech has always been at the intersection of media and these new distribution channels, very specifically in how to create, distribute, and monetize content across the internet. So finding myself in a traditional news organization, I actually don't feel too badly out of place. Uh, and to be very frank as well, the South China Morning Post has an opportunity was not just academic, nor was it just practical from a career standpoint. It was very, very personal, because telling the story of the rise of China in a way that the rest of the world could truly understand and hopefully elevate the overall understanding of China is something that is near and dear to my heart as an Asian American who grew up in the West, myself not having access to the comprehensiveness of information about China and my culture. Uh, it, it certainly. It, it means a lot to me to participate in that for the future. But it must have been a pretty big change to go from Dig to a newspaper. It, it was a huge change, even just size of company. Um, I'm actually, to this day, still pretty shocked that the ownership and the board of the South China Morning Post took such a large bet on me as an individual. At Dig, I was leading a company of 25 people. At the SCMP, it's now a little over 1,000. So just the scale of operation and certainly the overall reach and impact of the news organization is very different. And why, why did you do that? You uprooted your life. You moved from New York to Hong Kong. You go from a, a small... Yeah, and everyone should feel terrible for me that I have to live in such an awful city as Hong Kong. <laughs> and you go from a, a small venture-backed company to a large uh, 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 legacy, you know... I mean, how old is the South China Morning Post? It's 114 years old. It is very different. So what, culturally, what was, Dig, was Dig 114 months old? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, it was. It was a little bit older than that. But not um, by much. But not by much. Yeah, not by much. Actually, it was founded in 2005. So not by much. Um, it was. 
it, it has been an adjustment without a doubt. And by the way, in case the sarcasm didn't come across in the podcast, Hong Kong is an absolutely wonderful city, and I'm very fortunate to be living there. Uh, and so that change, New York to Hong Kong, is actually quite easy. But the organization itself, culturally, is very different. And it's not just going from Western culture to Chinese operating culture, but from the fast pace of the technology world to really uh, the default status of inertia in a traditional industry like the newspaper industry, especially in Asia. You went from one of the most rapidly growing, a successful company in one of the most rapidly growing industries in the world to, uh, to, to an industry that's flailing, if not failing. Yes. Well, although I always like to clarify that I think that the, that the news industry itself uh, is entering into what I believe to be a golden age of news storytelling, just because of the scale we have access to and the canvases through which we can tell the story of the world. But it is the businesses that currently exist, the legacy businesses that have not found a way to get their arms around uh, new developing consumer behavior. So the industry itself, I don't think it's failing. I think that more so than ever, there is a need for objective uh, news and high-quality journalism. And there is actually not only a need, but there's an appetite for it. It's the businesses that are legacy that are struggling. And what, uh, why, did the, why did the board want you? So uh, for those of you who don't know, April of 2016, uh, South China Morning Post changed ownership went from being a, a truly family-owned news organization owned by the Kwok family, part of the, the Shangri-La Carey Group, to being owned by Alibaba in April 2016. And part of that transition, part of that, that, that purchase by Alibaba was that uh, the, the company felt very strongly that not only was South China Morning Post a news organization that uh, being respected and having the long tenure that it does in Asia is worth reinventing uh, but Alibaba felt like if the technology industry and their expertise in the technology industry would allow us to innovate and lead out of Asia what digital media sh is supposed to look like long term. Not only in the way that we do journalism, but also in the way that we monetize down the road uh, quality journalism. So they were in that transition looking for a CEO that was quote unquote natively digital. I'm not really sure what that means, but I think that they were looking for somebody who actually understood the distribution and consumption channels that we're working with today. Prior to getting the job, had you ever bought a physical copy of a newspaper? Yes. So that's actually what makes me stand out uh, from my peers is that I have always had subscriptions and owned, well, had subscriptions to physical newspapers. I grew up on them. I understand the structure of a broadsheet really well, which, by the way, is why I often in public rail on the fact that the platforms today have atomized, and we can talk about this later, Nico, um, atomized the structure of the broadsheet, which I still believe is fundamentally important to understanding what high quality news looks like. Uh, and so, yes, I'm very, very Why familiar with Why is it fundamentally important? Why is the broadsheet fundamentally oh, we, important? We, I get to get into yes. this this early, yeah. huh? Um, okay, so actually, let me start with a question for this group. Actually, I, I want to ask the students in this room. So for those of you who are students, does anyone know what the, the term op-ed refers to? What does op-ed stand for? Anyone want to give it a shot, the students? Someone said opinion editorial. Okay. Anyone else? <laughs> I, I will answer the question. And the nonsense, Susan, you of all people definitely know the answer to this because we've talked about it so much. Um, opinions and editorials is the answer I almost always get. Actually, no student organization, including journalism schools around the world that I've asked this to, has gone this right. Op-ed actually stands for opposite editorials. Okay, let me explain why that matters. The structure of a traditional broadsheet newspaper lays out the different assets that make up, holistic, holistically make up what news has been for a long time and what I believe news needs to continue to be, which is a separation between facts, opinions, and then an insights and analysis. Okay, there are three very distinct types of content that exists in a broadsheet. Front page facts are supposed to be incredibly objective, not editorialized, although again, that line is massively blurring even in major news organizations today. And then we've always had what is known either as the leaders in British newspapers or what we call opinions in uh, American newspapers, which is the voice of the newspaper, voice of the editor-in-chief. Opposite 
to those editorials uh, is the is the is the op-ed page, which is the contributors and commentators that bring in the insights and the analysis. Understanding the difference between those three different aspects that make up news um, is actually really, really important to know what quality journalism looks like. And actually, newspapers and news organizations still to this day structure stories. And if you if you go into the New York Times newsroom, the Washington Post newsroom, certainly our newsroom, when our editorial team is talking about a major piece of news, we will still structure a package of news that includes front page objective facts, our leaders, as well as the op-eds that go along with it. Here's the problem, is that with the platforms that through which we discover content today, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or, or Google, uh, our relationship, our interaction with news organizations, newspapers in general, are singular. They're one article at a time. And when I click on an opinion, or I click on an editorial, or I click on a, a objective piece of fact, right, front page news, they generally speaking all look exactly the same to me when I'm consuming it on the internet. And we have now raised multiple generations of news consumers that cannot tell the difference, that do not even know that there is a difference. Sites like the Huffington Post that have been around for over a decade and really define in a lot of ways how internet news has, has, has evolved, have socialized or normalized opinion as front page fact. And news organizations haven't reacted. So when my newsroom, and I have my own frustrations with the way that we operate today at the SCMP, decides that we're going to create a package of news that is front page news and then an editorial and then a series of op-eds, uh, we forget that we no longer have an audience that reads our main book from first page to last page. So they do not read all three or four of the stories that we want you guys to read to actually get the holistic view of, a, of, of, an, of an event. They only read one. Um, and and that, is a, that is a major problem. So understanding the structure of the broadsheet and being able to effectively redeploy and redevelop that with the channels we have available to us, with the canvases we have available to us today, I think goes a long way to a newspaper's accountability in re-teaching media literacy across the world. Hmm. What surprised you most when you, your first week on the job? That's a really good one. The first week, what was so immediately apparent to me was that South China Morning Post was ready for transformation. I did know that the SCMP needed transformation, certainly, and that there are specific leaders across the organization that wanted it. But what I found was an entire company of 1,000 people that was, uh, that was ready for it. And that is, is, a, is a, a lot of credit goes to the previous CEO and previous leadership for removing the inertia and getting the organization turnaround ready to move. And so it was much easier for me, uh, instead of having to push an old car up the hill, I was effectively at the apex and I just had to push the car over the hill. Uh, and in the first 10 months that I've been there, and I've only been there for 10 months, it has been a, a huge advantage and a luxury that we're able to, to, to move fast because of that. What, how, do you think about, um, how do you think about the challenges of how the South China Morning Post's position? It's in Hong Kong. Your owners are in China. It's, it's an English language daily. Talk about the politics of that. I would say that it's not so much, I think it's luxury of position because it it's, makes us extremely unique. I'm sure most people in this room understand that reporting on China is an incredibly difficult thing right now. And the luxury that the SCMP has is that we are based in Hong Kong and we are treated as a Hong Kong news organization. The complexity of it is that we are treated as a Hong Kong news organization, but because we publish in English and English only, and most of our audience is now outside of greater China, uh, we have to work with the Beijing government through both the Hong Kong channels as well as the foreign press channels. We have to do both, and that complicates the relationship. But being in Hong Kong means that we are still protected by the independent judiciary and the freedoms of press that exist in Hong Kong, yet we have the intimacy to be able to report on China. So we have our 40 staff in China, mostly translators, 
And so we have access to the right sources, we have access to the nuance and the texture of China, and we are able to report that for the rest of the world. That, that puts us in a very, very unique position. What, what is your uh, aspiration or vision for the South China Morning Post? I can actually give you the newly articulated vision and mission yeah. statements for the company. The vision statement for South China Morning Post, very, very simple two words, is to elevate thought. Effectively, what we mean is that we want to meet our readers where they are. I'm not going to judge you for what your opinion is at that moment in time. I'm not going to say that you're behind or ahead of the, the, the general public. I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to help you get to the next level of understanding. And our mission statement, which is much more specific, is to lead the global conversation about China. We frankly believe that a conversation is not necessary, that we don't need any more bullhorns shouting at the world about how to view China, but that we need to create a platform and we need to have the uh, different perspectives and sources of information to allow for a meaningful conversation globally uh, around what the rise of China actually means for the world. What, uh, to talk a little more about the complexities of that conversation given your relationship with the Chinese government, but also given, I mean, do you think of your audience as Hong Kong? Do you think of your audience as mainland China? But do you think of your audience as the West? Our audience is definitely not mainland China. We are 100% blocked in mainland China. We do not have a Chinese language product. We don't intend on creating uh, a, a Chinese product and, and face inward. That is not our intent. Our audience today is about 70% international. When I say international, it's outside of Hong Kong and 30% Hong Kong. That 30%, to be very honest, today it's probably about 25, 26%. It will continue to decline as we grow internationally. Uh, we effectively have 100% penetration of the addressable marketplace in Hong Kong. And so as the rest of our audience grows, the percentage in Hong Kong obviously drops. So we really are thinking about our future as uh, addressing the need of an international audience. But is the bulk of your revenue from Hong Kong? The bulk of the revenue today is from Hong Kong, and that is an issue. That is something that over the next few years we're going to have to adjust uh, for the sustainability of the business. What do you think are some of the big challenges facing the business? Like, what do you worry about when you get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, the, the, I would say three things. Number one is the complexity on reporting on China. We can talk a lot more about this later, but of course, as most people in the room understand, China is still very restrictive media environment. Now, um, again, as Hong Kong press, often sometimes uh, treated as foreign press, we have, uh, we have our own difficulties in reporting on China, but at the same time also the freedoms of being able to view things with objectivity and actually critique when necessary, but also celebrate when appropriate what's going on in China. Um, and, and we don't know exactly what that environment is going to look like in the next few years. We know that leading up to the 19th Party Congress, which starts October 18th, that reporting on China has uh, become even more restricted. Censorship has actually increased in mainland China quite significantly over the course of the last 10 months. Uh, whether or not that opens up again after the Congress is completed, we don't know. Right? We hope so, uh, but we don't know. So that's the first thing that worries me. The second thing that worries me is that even when we do have access and are reporting on China the way that we think is correct, we're not sure when the global audience will be ready for that more comprehensive point of view. What I mean by that is that I think that today, uh, especially the Western world views China with a very specific perspective. That perspective is certainly, uh, I'm not gonna say it's wrong, it is a perspective. Uh, it's a perspective that I do believe is somewhat archaic. Is the audience outside of greater China, outside of Asia, ready to perceive China, this, this very, very modern China that is different than the dystopian that oftentimes it's painted as? Is the, is the uh, general public ready for that, for, to, to understand China in that new way? Because it is actually shockingly difficult um, to separate 
your agree whether or not you agree with the form of governance in China versus what is actually happening in uh, in, in China as a whole the, the the rise of population out of poverty the innovation that's happening in China obviously the the massive growing domestic and international um, economy that is now shaping in a lot of ways what global trade looks like can we separate those two things right let's talk about very specifically here in the United States is the general public ready to accept that a rising in China could be good for the world, regardless of your own feelings about communism as um, a form of governance. That I'm not sure about. Um, and, and as a news organization, part of our role is at least is education, but is educating people what's going on is not to necessarily change their point of view. And it's certainly not to direct and say what form of governance is correct. That is, I do not believe our central role as a news organization. So how we engage with the international community in addressing that very specific, those very specific assumptions, that keeps me up. You said a little bit earlier, you said uh, that you thought the West view of China was archaic. Tell me a little more about what you mean. This is a very specific example, um, and I don't like using n equals one in any in the way that I paint things. But yeah, actually, I was just told by somebody that I respect a lot never to use a straw man to describe something, and I'm about to. Um, but I, I will say this: I was observing a conversation that was going on about China, and somebody who was quite well educated was talking about their aversion towards a rising China for the world. And when asked why, they pointed to the examples of, uh, of surveillance, uh, concentration camps, and um, what was the third one that they mentioned? It was something also extremely dystopian. And the reality is that, goodness, uh, I'm blanking on the third one, but the reality is that that's, that's just not the China that if you spend any amount of time in the country that actually exists today. Uh, there are still massive amounts of restriction in the country. There are, there, there are significant human rights issues in the country. But overwhelmingly, if you spend time with the population there, with the citizens of China, uh, they are very happy. They're, 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 they're happy with their lives um, because of the fact that over the course of the last 20 years, five to 600 million of them have been raised out of poverty and the opportunities available to them versus the generation before them, and hopefully the generation after them, are just fundamentally different. Uh, and, and so I do think that this vision of China as uh, a 1960s, 1970s cultural revolution or prior uh, world uh, is, is just very, very different than the reality today. Did, did you have to? Uh, did you have to? learn all that in a sense? I mean, you came out of the tech industry going into the into into newspaper publishing. There's a whole bunch of uh, history and norms and, and practices that you confront and you have to learn. But did you did you have to come to your own understanding of China and as part of this? I feel like my understanding of China is going to continue to develop for hopefully the rest of my life because it is such a massive country. I think we talk about the size of 1.3 billion people. Uh, it's really hard to understand just how big that is until you see it in person, until you are in Shanghai during Golden Week and you watch 20 million people try and move about in Shanghai going in and out of the city for, uh, for holidays. Um, until you see the scale of innovation and when we are talking about startup development, how you can literally deploy and in the matter of weeks be addressing tens of millions of people and that is still considered small when it comes to scale in China. Until you see these things with your own eyes, the size of the country and the complexity of the country, the fact that there's this myth that China and even the communist government is a monolith, that is, that is so wrong, right? China is so much more textured than that. Until you see it, it's really, really hard to understand. So I think I will be learning for the rest of my life, but absolutely without a doubt, Nico, that in the last 10 months, my own prejudices and assumptions, because I grew up in the West, because as an American, I still believe that the Western democracy is the only form of governance that could possibly protect the human rights that I believe in, right, um, at scale. All of these things have been massively challenged by being there, talking to people, and actually understanding how policy and markets are, uh, are, are, are created in that country. I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience in a moment, but I have, a, I, I have a, another question just about 
the challenges of uh, digital transformation and the role of digital platforms. How do you think about um, how do you think about your 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 business model when the vast majority of all advertising um, uh, digital advertising dollars goes to Google and Facebook? So this is actually going to be a little bit of a longer answer. I hope you don't mind if I back right. up just to set the context. The way that we at the SCMP are thinking about our transformation is really in three major parts. The first is culture and identity. The second is structure and process. And the third is product and technology. Let me talk about each uh, very briefly. Culture and identity is massively important when you are trying to turn around a 114-year-old company. I, I think that um, I'm probably even understating it with that sentence. Uh, but until you have a company that is ready to experiment, willing to fail, and, and, and able to move with agility, and I know that these are all very tech buzzwords, but the reality is that unless, until you have a company that are willing and able to do all of those things, uh, you can talk all day long about transformation and where you're headed and you'll never get there. And it's really difficult when you have an organization that is made up of large swaths of people that have been doing the exact same thing in the exact same way for 20, 30, sometimes 40 years. And that there is a state expectation uh, that the old way is the only right way of creating of gathering news and creating quality journalism. So changing that culture, bringing in a new culture of experimentation and fast failure, uh, but at the same time, aggressive learning, uh, that was is step number one, and we're deep into that today. Step number two, which is process and structure. We were just talking, Nico, on the way over here, that uh, Organization, organizational structure has to be broken down and rebuilt. The way that traditional newsrooms are, are structured do not make sense in today's world. They're not fast enough for it. Um, the rhythm and the cadence of operation is different. Two very quick examples. When I arrived at the South China Morning Post, we as an organization were reviewing numbers um, on a monthly basis if we were lucky. And when I say monthly basis, is that after the month closes, about a month and a half later, we were looking at how, so in, in middle of February, we were looking at how December, how we performed in December, okay? And we were making decisions uh, half yearly, we only had annual plans for the company, which means that if we were lucky, every six months we identified what was wrong, we would take another six months to formulate our, uh, our resolution to that problem and then s execute for six months. So we're a year and a half away removed from identifying the problem or, or having a problem to actually hopefully resolving it. This is assuming you're getting it right on the first shot, right? Uh, the, the second example of that rhythm and cadence is that in the newsroom itself, people were still coming into the newsroom at 3 p.m. in the afternoon starting their day because everyone was still operating with the idea of this 11.30 p.m. off stone time for the sake of the printed paper the next day. 260 people in the newsroom are still thinking primarily about tomorrow morning's printed paper right, which is single digit percentages of our overall uh, audience. And but the vast majority of revenue. But the vast majority of the revenue. But honestly, the newsroom, I, I don't want them to care a whole lot about that, right, on, the, on the, the revenue side. So we had to change both of those two things. Now the, the news organization ref looks at data on a weekly basis and makes decisions and changes in operating structure on a weekly basis. Okay, and that of course has a lot to do with building up a data platform that allows us to actually see and gather these numbers weekly. And then the newsroom, what we just did a month ago is from 260 or now 300 people in the newsroom, taking it down to only 25 people in the newsroom who have the accountability of putting together tomorrow morning's printed paper. Okay, so now only 20, we have a dedicated print team and outside of those 25 people, no one else in the newsroom has a right to say what goes where in the printed paper. So now everyone is thinking only about the digital platforms, right? And the news, the, uh, the, the, printed, uh, the print team is actually curating from the best of the web for tomorrow morning's paper. So that's the second one. Process and structure have to fundamentally change. And the third one, product and technology, I don't have to speak too much about it. It's, that's pretty foundational. We have to rebuild everything from data infrastructure to the way that we're thinking about editorial product to the way we're thinking about uh, distributed media platforms. Um, and all of that is ongoing. It will take three years for us to not only build a technology team, but rebuild the product infrastructure to get this right. All right, questions from the audience. Yes, back here. Uh, who do you see, once, once all that's, oh, sorry. 
Once all that's taken care of, who do you see as your expanded audience internationally? Who are the readers and purchasers going to be? And the advertisers. Yeah. So let's start with the readers. And I think that the the, the partners and the advertisers are just uh, the, the continuation of that. It really is the English language world outside of greater China. That's I know that that's uh, it's oversimplifying our marketplace, but I I, I believe that it's, we're within eight years of China becoming the number one economy in the world, and when that happens, we are no longer in a time where you can ignore what's going on in China. And this is, this is a problem that the, 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 the entire world has to address. This is an elevation of understanding that the entire world has to participate in. And so the world is our audience. If you want me to get more specific right now, I am focused a lot on developing products that make sense for an American audience as well as a Southeast Asian audience. The US, because I don't like taking pot shots, I just like making big bets, and the U.S. marketplace for us is the big bet. Uh, and then Southeast Asia, of course, as China continues to invest in what is known as the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, the participation of the Southeast Asian economies in China's future free trade route from China west towards the rest of Eurasia or through the rest of Eurasia uh, means that Southeast Asian populations need to understand their relationship with China much better than they do today. So these two regions of the world I'm focused on today. Uh, hi, um, I have a question about um, your view on the change of ownership that you mentioned that uh, from the Koch family to Alibaba, will that have an influence on the news that you select to, to report? Um, and I ask this because in the summer, uh, I, I noticed there's, a, there's an article that, that you reported and got pulled back. Um, I'm just wondering if the ownership and given the intimate relationship between Alibaba and the Beijing government, um, is that going to ha have an influence on your uh, objectivity uh, of your reporting? So um, I can answer this in, in, in two ways. So let me just be very frank with you. So my job as CEO is to make sure that the newsroom of the South China Morning Post stays staunchly independent. We have had commitment from our owners and our board of directors and our, our governance structure at the company is that I report into a board that has both Alibaba uh, representatives on it as well as independent directors. And the board and the owners have said multiple times very, very publicly that they believe in the sacrosanct independence of the newsroom and that they're committed to that. Uh, you can judge them based on their actions. As far as uh, since I have been there, the, the ownership has been extremely um, respectful of the newsroom. In fact, the reality is that our editor-in-chief runs the voice of the paper, runs our decision of coverage and framing, and uh, we have not had an issue at all. Uh, and, and my job is to make sure that, that there is no issue. Um, the other thing I, I do want to say is that this, this idea that ownership should never have an opinion about the newspapers or news organizations that they own and, and how they report, I, I think it's very idealistic. Uh, and, and it just it isn't the reality, right? The, the Kwok family, when South China Morning Post was owned by the Kwok family, had massive influence in what the editorial line of the newspaper is. I actually think that, I, in fact, I know for sure you asked the editors at the company, um, Alibaba as an owner over the course of the last year and a half, has left the newsroom alone much more and respected independence much more than previous re regimes of ownership. Um, I, even if you look at the venerated uh, Western media organizations that I certainly grew up with, ownership's opinions on how those companies cover the world, you can, you can see it all the time. Owners have a right to voice what they think their vision of the world to be. They have a right to voice it. They will always continue to voice it. It is up to news organizations, editors, and CEOs, and publishers to figure out how best to be able to protect the objectivity of the newsroom. Question. Oh, let me let me add on to that. By the way, one thing I always say to people who point at us and wonder, and this is actually Nico, going back to a question that you asked, what is a struggle that we're always going to face? This parentage thing, I'm I'm not naive. This parentage thing for the South China Morning Post, we're always going to have to live with. We're always going to have to struggle with it. All right, the fact that we are we are owned by 100% owned by a company based in China, uh, until the day where people believe that. 
Jack Ma and Alibaba are a responsible organization that is, is a global company rooted in China versus just a Chinese company that does the whim of the Beijing government. Until we get to that point where people believe that former, what the reality I think is, we're always going to struggle with parentage. So we know that, right? Um, what I always say to, to critics or folks that point at our coverage, I, I ask them to actually read our paper every single day. One example that I will use, and I'm very, very proud of, is that when, um, when the Chinese dissident uh, passed away, Liu Xiaobo, uh, the South China Morning Post covered Liu Xiaobo's passing, not only as a tragedy, but more deeply uh, and, and, and with more in a much more comprehensive way than any other news organization in the world, mostly because we had access and also we had an understanding of what that what he meant to China and what his death meant to the future of human rights and the democracy movement in China. Of course, in China, there's zero coverage of that. Uh, and, and yet we obviously stepped out of our way to make sure that we were able to cover that story with, with, and, uh, with breadth and depth. I'm very, very proud of our coverage. Nick? Thank you, Gary. Uh, Nicholas, uh, great student here at Harvard. Um, my question is actually along the same lines, but reverse. So rather than how you manage the oversight of, of the big bad Communist Party, uh, how, do you, uh, how do you cover China in what you sense to say is your mission statement? You saw Chinese government five, 10 years ago really getting savvy on media and getting savvy on communicating their, their domestic politics uh, to a large extent because of uh, involvement in Chinese media. You had like Wei Shen involvement, uh, even like old, old timers like Red Merunabao got really good at communicating also to an international audience. And there's been a big push internally in China for uh, Chinese uh, media companies to do that. At the same time, there's been this reverse that you talked about leading up to the 19th Party Congress, but also just following the, the centralization around Xi Jinping. So how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you tell the China story in a way that's not necessarily how the Chinese government wants it, but in a responsible, uh, well-covered way? Uh, in the yeah, let me unpack that. There's a lot in there. The first thing I want to address is this big, bad Communist Party uh, thing. I, I think that yeah, it's very easy for us in the Western world to look at the Chinese Communist Party point to it and say, it's, it's communism, it must be bad. I honestly think that we need to have a more nuanced and textual understanding of what the Communist Party and its governance in China means. Um, a very, very smart editor in Asia of a uh, major Western newspaper said, and I've been stealing this and using it all over the place, that Western media organizations have a tendency to cover China in only three ways, big China, bad China, and weird China. And I think that that's a very astute observation. And there's so much more to China than just big, bad, and weird. Of course, the big, bad, and weird stories still have to be covered as part of that overall comprehensive objectivity. Well, one could argue that's how the American press covers everything. Big, bad, and that, weird. That is very fair. That is very fair. Big, bad, and weird White House. Um, and so, so I, I think the first thing is to know that there are huge gaps in that, and that hopefully, we will be able to cover, for instance, the party, the mystery and the secrecy around even the party congress right now, and be able to dissolve some of that mystery and secrecy. And have people understand the process that goes into the party congress and the choosing of the next group of leadership for the next five years and how reform or policy coming out of that um, is determined by these very, very critical months leading up to it and during the, the week or week and a half of the Congress. De demystifying that, I think, will allow the world to view China with, uh, with, with, with more texture. Our role in it is, and this is what, being able to invest in the newsroom. We're one of the very few major newspapers in the world that has a growing newsroom. We're literally hiring people, not cutting them. And being able to hire more people means that we'll be able to cover more of China. Uh, there are areas that the New York Times and, uh, and, and Wall Street Journal and the FT and Bloomberg do very, very well in coverage of China. Yes, we do see them as competitors, um, but there are certain things that we're going to let them continue to do. And we want to fill the rest of the gaps, right? Um, now, to your second point about China changing their stance and the way that they communicate to the greater world, yes, you're right. The Beijing government has learned to communicate with the world better, but they're still not good at it. Frankly, they're still actually, they're quite bad, right? 
Um, and it really is, it's cultural. Chinese people have never been good at telling our own story. We don't know how to own narrative very well. Uh, we're poetic in our own language, uh, and when it's translated to other languages, especially English, it feels very, very rigid. Um, and a lot of the, again, the nuances of the language just do not translate properly at all. And so when messaging comes out from the communist government about internal uh, policy or the way that they, they view international politics and, and, and marketplaces, uh, very often it is it is reported on word for word without really understanding the context from which it was being, the policies were being created and the communications being created. And yes, Beijing is trying to change that, right? The, the investment they put into uh, English language media organizations, including China Daily, um, shows that, that, that they really are trying. Uh, but when you have a government owning media organizations and trying to tell their story through owned and operated media organizations, it is always going to be propaganda. And that is what China Daily is. And so our role in this is that we, we need to maintain a working and a strong and a respectful relationship with the Chinese government, with Beijing. They understand that we are not trying to go for the lowest common denominator. They understand that our intent is to understand them. Right? And then be able to tell their story in what we believe to be a comprehensive way. Um, and we still need, from their side, respect of our business and the objectivity of our news. That is a very fine balance when it comes to it's the relational dynamics that you can imagine are extremely difficult. And thankfully, we have incredible editors within our newsroom, our leaders, who know how to balance that relationship, know when to push back. Right, um, and, and know how to effectively plant a flag in the sand or, or draw a line in the sand, whichever one you want to use, and say, okay, this is when you have to understand that, protected by Hong Kong's freedom of press, we're going to report on this no matter whether or not you like it. Um, so th that, that's our role. We, we do not look like China. The world does not need another Xinhua at all, and we have no intent whatsoever of being that. But at the same time, the world also does not need more big, bad, weird China reporting, and so we're trying to cover the gaps. David? Yeah. Then... Hi, uh, Gary, thanks for speaking to us. Um, you've mentioned a few of your sort of competitors or benchmark places, FT, Economist, uh, and maybe China Daily. Who do you see for the US products as the people who are inhabiting the space you hope to fill? The New York Times, without a doubt. Uh, New York Times continues to have an incredible bureau uh, in, in China, and really incredible reporting. One thing that we today cannot compete against the New York Times on is how to package and how to craft narrative for the American audience. New York Times writes beautifully, is able to tell the story in a way that is compelling to a Western, especially American audience, and that's something that us, especially as a news organization that still is heavily rooted in old British Fleet Street reporting, uh, we, we haven't quite grasped. And, and actually, one of the systemic issues that we have to deal with that is so unique to us is that so much of our in-depth news gathering in and around China is obviously in the Chinese language. It's very hard, close to impossible, to find people who um, understand the Chinese language to the point where we can actually do the, the accurate news gathering, but can write in, with the fluency in English the kind of narrative that American audiences um, are attuned to. And so it's all, there's always a translation process. However you look at it, uh, we gather news, we write out the skeleton in, in English, and then there's always editors who have to restructure and rebuild the story. And so we have to find that quality balance of editors who really understand the story well enough to restructure for an international audience, um, but don't lose the complexity of the story. So that's something that we have to build up. That is a, that is a skill set that we, uh, uh, right now for the New York Times, still unmatched. Um, and and we, need to, we need to aggressively actually build that internally. Um, there, there are certain other areas, especially in finance reporting right now, that Bloomberg and FT are doing an incredible job of. Um, technology reporting within China, uh, I still think Wall Street Journal, uh, more than anyone else, has a grasp on, uh, on developing technology in China. Increasingly so, actually, a, a new media company called The Information has a very small but a very high-powered reporting team based out of Hong Kong that's doing a great job on tech. So vertical by vertical, we have different competitors, but I'm happy to be very upfront that Mark Thompson and, and uh, Dean and Joe and their teams uh, at the New York Times are still the, the leader of the pack. And, and, and they still they own the narrative of China in the United States. That's the thing that I want to be able to augment.
Hi, I'm Edward Wong, the former bureau chief in Beijing with the New York Times. You're welcome. Um, so I'll, uh, for the sake of debate, I'll push back against a few of the things that you said and then ask you a question um, based on that. So I actually think that there are very few people today in the Western world who still see China as a sort of cultural revolution relic or as a 1960s or 1970s China. I do think that there are people who might see it as an authoritarian system that um, degrees of control or surveillance over people are varying depending on whom you, which Western person you ask. I also think that people see it as this um, sort of business giant that's, um, whose economy is churning. Uh, I meet plenty of people in the U.S. who want to send their kids overseas to study in China or, um, or have people hit, or have their kids learn Chinese in schools here. So I also detect a lot of desire to engage with China. Um, and, but I think my overall thing since I returned to the U.S. last December and talking to people about China was that in general, consumers of news, and not only on the issue of China, but also many other things, can only keep like two or three ideas about something in their head at once. Like it's very, very hard, I think, for people who don't follow a subject to really understand all the nuances, the type of nuances that you're talking about, and whether that's China or the Trump presidency or um, or the global economy. And um, and there's a lot of self-reflection on our part about how we cover China. And I think we've expanded our types of coverage on China. But I also see, um, I also feel frustrated when I talk to people about it because whenever I talk to people, there's everyone seems to have one stock thing that they keep in their head about China. They ask about the pollution, or they ask about the party system, or they ask about infrastructure. Um, they, and I don't think it's the Western portrayal of China as much as it is the limits of people's ability to ingest knowledge, because I actually think that there's a wide range of coverage out there about China, whether it's in the Times, in your paper, or on many different websites online. And also, the fact that the atomization news means that people aren't getting their news. Like you say the Times is driving a narrative of China, but I actually think that the way that news is consumed these days, people are getting their news or their info about China from many different sources. So I guess my question to you is like, given what I see as like the limits of the way people can understand narratives, like how do you um, tackle that about, like how do you promote sort of this more nuanced view of China that you're talking about? Yeah, so this is, um, Edward, thanks for, you bring up a lot of great points. Um, this is why I don't like using strawman as an illustration and I, Maybe not retro retrospectively. I, I do have to apologize for deciding to do that. Um, but I, I think that, listen, you, you and I have the luxury being in the roles that you've inhabited for a long time. And, and certainly in, in my conversations, we have access to different kinds of people around the, the world. And actually, um, generally speaking, when we talk about China with folks, I'm going to guess that uh, the, the circles we talk about, we, we talk to the circles that we're in when we get to talk about the nuances of China, there is much better understanding than I am portraying. Uh, but we ourselves, as a news organization, have done a significant amount of research across the United States about understanding of China. And I do think that in mass public, and I'm not even talking about the coast, the coast being one thing, but the rest of America, where the economics of the entire country are being affected by China, I do think that there is still a significant lack of understanding. One thing, for instance, we know is that there is a shockingly low percentage of people, um, even educated folks in the United States, who know the pres who the president of China is. Whereas the reverse, in China, every there's a, ma a much larger understanding of not only who the president is, but um, an opinionated understanding of our U.S. president's uh, policies um, and personality. And I think that not even knowing the leadership and how the leadership is formed and the structure of leadership in China, uh, not knowing that I think is, is, uh, is actually, it, it, it does allow for a, a limited perception of the country itself. So to your point, um, Okay, if there is, and I, unfortunately, frankly, I haven't studied how human beings uh, retain and process information that much. I, I'm certainly not a neuroscientist, um, and I don't know how information, um, especially in today's world of distribution, is, is, is uh, collected and saved in the, in the human brain. Um, but I do think that... It, that the, okay, now, now I'm losing my train of thought. I apologize for that. But I, I think that... 
Um, I do believe in greater capacity of individuals to understand multiple perspectives if they have access to it. I, I'm much more pessimistic than it seems you are about whether or not the Western world, especially Americans, have access to different perspectives when it comes to China. I have a very, very hard time finding different perspectives. There are moments where I sh actually uh, you know, struggle even with our paper at times of being able to produce the multiple different perspectives on China that I think that our audience deserves. Uh, and I, I just, I, had, I frankly have a hard time finding it. Right, in, in Western press, um, especially with the platforms and the way that the algorithms work today um, in, in finding it through those distribution channels. So I hope that we will be able to build up that depth, uh, or at the very least in this case, the breadth of perspectives, um, and at least allow for access to that when people deem that they want it. I don't know if I answered your question at all. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, um, I mean, I think it's an ongoing conversation. Yeah. There's no easy answer to that. So. All right. Uh, two, two questions here, and then Richard. Um, hi, Gary. Um, my name is Francis. Uh, I, um, thanks for sharing. I also hear your talk um, in Google this summer when you come, uh, come to Google for the talk um, in Hong Kong. Um, I'm very interested about your, um, your opinion on the intersection between the uh, media, business, and also technology, because you come from the technology background. And then I think in the written interview, you mentioned about uh, instant uh, messaging will be a, a future trend for the new media. So I'm wondering about your um, maybe your your opinions about you know the future movement or innovations uh, in South China Morning Post. I think maybe your technology background will make that more like you know like technology focused by combining with the media. So just your thought on the innovation side on that. Sure. Uh, editorial product, like I said, has to change. And today, editorial product is actually quite complicated. It used to be, hey, write the most accurate, best pieces of news, and then your company actually owns the entire vertically, vertically integrated stack of how to create news and how to distribute news and how it's consumed. Right? Everyone has the exact same experience. That's no longer the case. So editorial product today is the right content with the right packaging for the right distribution channel, and it's permutations of every single version of that. Right, distribution channels and consumption channels are also different things. I can find the same story through multiple different sources from multiple different places. I can consume it in multiple different formats. Um, and, and every single one of those looks different. It's a different kind of content, but it might be the same story. How on earth does a news organization that struggles today to even put together one version of the story correctly right, um, do that? across not only scale of audience, but multiple different permutations of, uh, of, of platforms. That's a technology um, struggle that we're going to have to solve. Um, and and we're, we're, we're trying, right? A lot of that has to do with building the right infrastructure. Uh, effectively, if we want to get into to nerd out on specifics, building the right content management system so that when you are filing a story, you're filing it as different assets, and we're able to reassemble the assets in a way that makes sense for each of the distribution channels and, and, and formats. On your specific question about instant messaging, uh, my opinion on messengers is that because so much of our time and, uh, and attention is now literally within this sandbox of messaging. Right? It doesn't matter what messenger you're using, WhatsApp, WeChat, Line, Facebook Messenger, even Instagram and uh, Snapchat are all messaging platforms at this point. Um, the reality is that content distribution and therefore discovery is going to end up in those platforms. That, that feels inevitable to me. You look at the areas of the world, including China, where messaging is now the primary point of content distribution and discovery, um, and how that has fundamentally changed the news industry in those countries. The United States, I believe, it's, it's coming to head there. right? And we, as news organizations, probably have spent not enough time understanding what that means for our businesses. Um, one other area that we are very, very focused on, and we're still years away from this because we're just starting now, is how artificial intelligence is going to change the way that we create news and distribute news. <coughs> the distribution of the uh, of news side for artificial intelligence is actually through smart speakers. Right There is this uh, starting to be this significant material penetration of smart speakers in people's homes. And the 
the, the discovery behavior of actually talking to a device that is listening to you and asking it questions and trying to get information out of it. And so I do think that discovery of news before long, a lot of it is going to be uh, based on whether or not you know, the smart speaker and therefore your news organization can parse natural language, right? Can understand somebody asking a question to a speaker or to your phone and giving them the right news, the most up-to-date version of the news um, at, at that moment in time. And so these things, I think, are going to disintermediate our business yet again. Uh, and so we can't be focused just on social anymore. It is these other channels that, um, that, that are coming. Richard, last question. Uh I wanted to follow up on the Times in this question. I co-founded the magazine Mother Jones, and I sit on the editorial board of the nation, and I couldn't be on either of those if they tried to publish in China. And so complexity doesn't serve me. Uh, the simplicity of knowing that I couldn't be the journalist that I've been in my career in that country is all I need to know. Now, what is it that you're going to bring from the South China Morning Post to me that's going to assure me that China is something that we shouldn't be worried about, not because it's big, bad, or weird, but because its principal sources of authority are in contradiction to the principles of my country. I am not, my job and the, the role of the South China Morning Post is not to convince you not to worry about China. That is absolutely not our role. Our role is to give you as much information as we possibly can for you to make up your own damn mind. And the reality is that I just don't think the comprehensiveness of information is out there right now. What more comprehensive information would I need to be assured that I can publish or report as Mother Jones in Beijing? What? I don't understand what complexity adds here. Uh, you don't understand what complexity adds here. I, I, I'm actually not sure how to answer that question because I, th then it feels like we fundamentally disagree on what it means to have access or democratize information. There is so much more to China than just because the, the because the governing uh, the, the 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 structure of governance is communism, therefore it must be bad. I, I didn't say uh, that it was bad. I didn't say there wasn't more. I asked a specific question. I do think we disagree because I think that the issue for me is the freedom to report on those things which are embarrassing to powerful. And I think that this is what makes the South China Morning Post unique, is that we are in Hong Kong, and therefore we can report on that. You, the, the Liu Xiaobo example, and this is only one of many that I can point out, is, is highly embarrassing to Beijing. Beijing did not want certainly any of its citizens or the rest of the world media to be focused so much on the fact that this dissident uh, died. And, and really what that says about China's progress or lack thereof in some areas of human rights. And if we were in China, you're 100% right, we would not be able to report on it. And we're, we were able to report on it because we are not pointing inward. And this is one thing that I think needs to be understood about China is that what China wants to protect first and foremost is the dissemination of information to their own citizens. They care most about what is inside of their borders. They care about the integrity of their borders more than practically anything else. Uh, and that comes through in international policy and fiscal policy and the way that they operate and, and control their markets as well. And, uh, and, and so, yes, you're right. Uh, neither Mother Jones nor the South China Morning Post will be able to exist as a news organization within China telling the story of China to the Chinese people. Um, and I'm not going to, that's not what I'm chasing. Um, what I'm trying to, to, to provide to the rest of the world is more information. That's my hope, is more information. And I do think that it is absolutely necessary for the world to have more information. I think that there's so much of China that is untold. I think that, uh, let me give another example. Um, the, there is a, um, okay, uh, I'll give a, a, a very specific example. I think there's a lacking narrative. There's a, there's a lack to the narrative of what uh, artificial intelligence development in China and the tech industry actually means um, and how it's massively changing the consumer marketplace there. Um, and, and there's a lot of good in that. Uh, and it's it's just it's not reported on in it's it's very under reports again I don't want to make gi gen giant general sweeping statements it's underreported in uh, in the rest of the world and I think when you understand why uh, a lot of Chinese 
companies as well as um, AI uh, leaders, even in Silicon Valley, are pointing to China and say, hey, you have to pay attention because this country is leading in artificial intelligence design. Um, why, why they're doing that? Um, it, it's, 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 this is a, it's a fascinating story, and, and today it is very myopic the way we're looking at artificial intelligence development in China. We think that it is for a authoritarian need. We're thinking about the application of that, not in the enhancement of, uh, of, of people's lives, but in the control of people's lives. And I just fundamentally, having seen it, disagree with that assumption. Uh, my last question is, what are you reading uh, actually, because the 19th Party Congress is coming up, I am reading a fascinating book by an, uh, an ex-Financial Times editor um, named Richard McGregor. It's, it's from 2010. It's not new. It's called The Party. And it is uh, an attempt to uncover, or at the very least demystify, some aspects of the Communist Party, how it's structured, um, how it operates. It's actually fascinating. Um, and it's given me a lot better understanding of why the party continues to con is, is able to maintain control of China um, and yet disappear so quickly into the background uh, and uh, w within within China itself. So yeah, that that for me is just education right now because the Party Congress and such an important one is coming up. Thank you very much, Gary. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.